Today, we're going to be covering in a really short essay, and this one is actually an opinion piece that was published by famous VC investor Michael Moritz, often known as Mike Moritz. Uh, he was a partner at Sequoia. I'll give a quick background on him really quickly, and I'll talk about this piece. Um, so Mike Moritz is fascinating. He actually started off his career as a journalist at Time Magazine, um, and uh, he actually wrote also the earliest book on Apple and Steve Jobs, which is The Little Kingdom. And interestingly enough, you know, back when he was a journalist at Time, at Times Magazine, um, Steve actually contracted Michael Moritz to document the development of the Mac. He actually hired him to basically come and profile this kind of, you know, historical moment in the making. And he actually dubbed Michael Moritz Apple's historian. Uh, you know, incredibly enough, fast forward a couple of years, and uh, Michael Moritz had done a bunch of research. A piece ends up getting published under his names uh, at, at the Times Magazine. Um, and, uh, you know, he ends up saying his, his editor took a bunch of liberties, uh, long story short, Steve reacted very negatively to this piece and, and effectively broke off all communication with Michael Moritz. So that's the kind of complicated background that Mike Moritz had with Steve jobs. You know, we're in the middle of profiling, uh, you know, Steve jobs and, and as part of that, we're looking at him through the lens of a bunch of people that worked with him closely. Um, you know, we're looking at, uh, you know, Nolan Bushnell, uh, who hired, who was the first person to hire at him Atari. Um, we're looking at uh, Insanely Simple and Ken Seagal, who worked with Steve as a creative director at Shiat Day. Um, you know, we're going to be looking at Steve through the lens of Tony Fidel, um, who wrote uh, the book Build and who was famous for basically coming on to help launch the, I the iPod. Mike Moritz is, uh, you know, a fascinating another, it's a, he provides a fascinating perspective on Steve that I think no one else captured. And so the piece that we're going to focus on today, it's called Imitators Take Note, Steve Jobs Was More Than a Showman. What's interesting about it is it's actually an opinion piece that Michael Moritz published in the Financial Times in November 2015. Um, and the basic idea of this, and I think what's so fascinating about it, is it looks at uh, the success of Apple through the lens of how capital efficient the company was. And that Steve, as ambitious as he was, um, you know, as well known as he is for a showman, was actually an incredible operator. And a lot of Apple's success was due to basically financial discipline. And so that's the backstory here. It's kind of complicated. I wanted to share all of that up front. And what I'm going to do is just read the piece and I'll add commentary as, as always. Um, but this is another fascinating perspective on Steve Jobs. Um, Habits adopted during a company's early years influence performance is kind of the synopsis of, of this piece. Okay, I'll go ahead and jump into the text. It's easy to forget that when he was a student, the man who brought us the Macintosh iPhone and iPad and with his little finger Pixar collected bottle caps to make ends meet. The need to stretch every nickel informed the way Apple was run during the early days. It's on that spell, rather than the enormous public profile commanded by Steve Jobs in his later years, that would-be emulators should dwell. And again, this is kind of hidden commentary for startup companies today. And, I, and you know, Mike Moritz is going to jump in, talk a little bit about some of the ills that he sees. But the reason he's, uh, you know, giving this perspective on Steve Jobs and Apple is that it's very different. And it's, you know, being capital efficient is no longer the norm, and yet it's still always the best way to build a business. Lost in the millions of words devoted to Jobs, um, since his sad and untimely death, death is what established Apple in the first place, an approach to business far removed from the techniques employed by the managers of the three- or four-year-old subprime unicorns that command billion-dollar valuations. Now, this paragraph I'm probably going to read twice is really important. Peruse Apple's initial public offering prospectus, and the numbers are startling. 
In the year preceding its flotation in 1980, Apple recorded sales of $117 million and pre-tax income of $24 million. It did this in a market cluttered with dozens of companies making personal computers and with a payroll of about 1,000 people, almost half of whom, believe it or not, were engaged in manufacturing. Apple's initial public offering, which raised $90 million, valued the company at $1.2 billion. Multiply these numbers by three if you're comparing them with current dollars. So let's say that's, you know, $3.6 billion, $4 billion today was the valuation Apple floated at. Apple's two founders and their chosen chief executive owned about 40% of their creation, largely because they had been so efficient and parsimonious, effectively very frugal, with the small amount of outside capital that they had raised. Apple became a public company in a month when the prime rate stood at 21.5%. That's incredible. Yes, the decimal point is in the correct position. And the capital markets were bruising. I'm going to read that again. And effectively, you know, the note that what the point that Michael Moritz is making here is, um, you know, not only did Apple do well during its IPO because of its financial success, it wasn't just on kind of a promise. It literally had $24 million in pre-tax income. And that's above paying for a thousand employees. So Apple was already financially very successful before it became public. But this also led to a high ownership from the founders. You know, the only way that companies can effectively raise venture capital and avoid an enormous amount of dilution is to be capital efficient. Because what that means is you have to raise less capital. Your goal is to have the biggest, build the biggest business, have the biggest end outcome while using the least capital as fuel to get there. And I think Apple's a startling example. So read this again, and then I'll finish off the rest of the piece. Peruse Apple's initial public offering prospectus, and the numbers are startling. In the year preceding its flotation in 1980, Apple recorded sales of $117 million and pre-tax income of $24 million. It did this in a market clutter, cluttered with dozens of companies making personal computers and with a payroll of about 1,000 people, almost half of whom, believe it or not, were engaged in manufacturing. Apple's initial public offering, which raised $90 million, valued the company at about $1.2 billion. And as we said, it's about $4 billion today, if adjusting for inflation. Apple's two founders and their chosen chief executive owned about 40% of their creation, largely because they had been so capital efficient and parsimonious, really frugal, with the small amount of outside capital they had raised. Apple became a public company. And this is one last damning point. Apple became a public company in a month when the prime rate stood at 21.5%, which is just absolutely startling. All this is most germane in the era of the subprime unicorn. Because the habits adopted during the formative years of a company have such an influence on its eventual operating performance. Apple's tone in its early years was influenced not just by jobs, but by a management team composed of several alumni of the semiconductor industry. This is really fascinating. A milieu where the consequences of an operating mistake are harsh. You know, we've talked about this before, but Apple's incredible because it spikes on so many different um, areas that are very difficult independently. And to find a company that can not just create groundbreaking innovative devices, you know, hardware, software, everything full stack integrated, but can also operate incredibly capital efficiently and can operate, uh, you know, just in, like a very fine-tuned machine. That in and of itself is very hard to find. And Mike Moritz is making that point. And, you know, and basically saying that a large part of that was the management team was composed of people uh, from the semiconductor industry where operating mistakes are harsh because it's a very capital intensive industry. Some will argue that Apple's lineage is irrelevant, and in some respects, they're right. Open source software and Amazon Web Services make it far easier and cheaper to start a company or at least build a product than it was when Jobs co-founded his business. 
On the flip side, at least in Silicon Valley, it is also more difficult and expensive to build a company up than it was at the end of the 1970s and early 1980s. The fact that there are more technology behemoths, Amazon, Apple, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, than at any time in history makes life tougher for startups. These companies, together with a raft of smaller, rapidly growing, profitable ones, and increasingly several Chinese businesses with Silicon Valley outposts, are run by people eager to conquer new frontiers. That has had a dramatic effect on the cost of startup labor. It's very true. It's very expensive today, and there's a lot of competition um, for the best talent. Uh, and, and as a result, you know, the, so it's effectively the point Mike's ma making here is, you know, tools in, in kind of the the uh, the software foundations you might need to, to at least build a build a product, but but potentially build a technology company are cheaper than ever. But startup labor is more expensive than ever, and it's because we're just in this hyper competitive era. Every capable person, whether their forte is engineering or sales or marketing, will be keenly fought over. And the large companies with their ample profit margins and huge cash flows are prepared to pay king's ransoms to retain their best and brightest or recruit the smart graduates. Add to that a large rise in the cost of property in the lookalike companies sprouting up all over the world, and it's clear Silicon Valley is more expensive in real dollars than 40 years ago. None of this means that the laws of business have suddenly been reversed. That Apple is now the world's mightiest company is because its principal founder and reinventor was always aware that his large public profile rested atop a meticulous operating machine, something that those who aspire to replicate his success might bear in mind. Quick commentary here. Obviously, the meticulous operating machine early on was Tim Cook, and this is why Tim was the predecessor that Steve Jobs picked. And, you know, one of the fascinating things, again, I talked about, you know, the fact that Apple spikes both on exceptional operating and exceptional innovation and kind of this full stack uh, creation of breakthrough devices. That is incredibly rare. And Jobs spoke to this before. You know, one of the things, um, and I'm blanking on where he references it, but one of the things he, he talked about uh, many times was the fact that he felt that Apple could take big swings because he knew that the business was being operated very efficiently and very effectively. And that is a really powerful combination. So again, if you look at Apple and you just think, oh my God, you know, they spend a tremendous amount of marketing. They spend a tremendous amount creating these kind of luxury technology breakthrough devices. If that's all you see, and what you don't see is that this rests on top a company that produce real cash flow. Again, talking about, you know, the year before its IPO, sales of 117 million and pre-tax income of 24 million. The only way you do that is when you make not just things that consumers want and people want, but you make it in a way that you can actually make a bottom line profit and be able to reinvest it in the business to come back and do it again tomorrow. Um, and so that is what's special. So again, that Apple is now the world's mightiest company is because its principal founder and reinventor was always aware that his large public profile rested atop a meticulous operating machine, something that those who aspire to replicate his success might bear in mind. And again, link to this article, uh, this opinion piece by Michael Moritz in the show notes. Um, it's imitators take note. Steve Jobs was more than a showman. You can find the episode notes for this, including my highlights, some of the commentary we shared here, as well as links to all the other great things we're covering about Apple and Steve Jobs at outlieracademy.com slash imitators take note.